Hello, my name is Buford Terwilliger, and I make pants. Pants the way Americans used to make pants. Pants by Americans for Americans. Pants made the way Americans used to make pants. 100% made of guns. That's right, every pair of Buford Terwilliger pants is made of firearms. Whether you're packing a howitzer or something closer to a derringer, we have a pair of pants that will fit you. I promise that once you've tried a pair of my Buford Terwilliger 100% firearms pants, you'll never go back. Try a pair of Buford Terwilliger gun pants today and know the comfort and the freedom that is pants made of guns. Buford Terwilliger gun pants are incredibly unsafe. Buford Terwilliger gun pants should never be worn when loaded. Buford Terwilliger gun pants may increase your chance of death by accidental gunfire. If death is not for you, consult your doctor. Buford Terwilliger's 100% American-made, 100% firearms gun pants. Strap on a pair today. Just make sure they're not loaded. What are you packing in your drawers? Find out every week on the Modern Combat and Survival Podcast, www.mcsmagazine.com. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson. And this is Buck Gunpants Green <laughs> from Modern Combat and Survival. And welcome to this week's Friday Reload, where Buck and I get together and talk about this week's news, the stuff on the blog, your comments, and just in general, like what the world needs to do to fix things the way that we want them fixed. And this week, when we talk about the blog, there wasn't really a lot to talk about because we didn't really, there wasn't a lot of activity on the blog. Our efforts were, were elsewhere, let's just, shall we say. But there was a pretty significant event that did happen, and it was in our podcast that we ran on this past Tuesday. And it was by far, of all of the podcasts that we've done so far, and all the ones that I've already created in our area that are in process right now of getting ready to be released, this was by far the one that really scared the hell out of me and really woke me up to, to things. And this one was about, it was our interview with John Whitehead about the coming police state, or not the coming police state, the police state that we're already in the midst of, of being under, only people's eyes are now being, you know, really opened because of recent events and things are being forced into the public eye now. Things that people have been talking about for decades, things that George Orwell wrote in 1984, and uh, John Whitehead is a civil rights attorney who has been defending cases um, against the police state, you know, powers that are out there. And, and civil rights that are being uh, that are being trampled on for citizens as well as especially veterans, and his stories of what he's he's been dealing with out there, true actual cases and stories, was really mind blowing to me. Uh, you know, Buck, this was this is something that you know we got we had somebody that responded in the in the comments yesterday saying this was the best podcast episode that we've done, and you know we should be doing more of that, and that was exactly I think how I ended it or I said somewhere in there, like this is something that I want to expose more. I want to give people practical, practical tips for because, you know, I know our demographic, like the people that we, that, you know, our, our followers, our readers, our subscribers, our customers, they're the most awake to this. You know, the, our people know that something's not right. And, you know, a lot of it gets blamed on, 
you know, the, the bulk of people that are, are listening to us and, and, and are following our products are conservative. They're a conservative group. And we have people from the Republican Party. We have people from the Tea Party, you know, libertarians. We've, we have, and, and Democrats. We have all, all kinds of people that are following us with the common denominator of, number one, they want, you know, everybody just wants the, the tips on how to survive something. But also, they know that something is afoot. And they know that it's not just the person that's in power as far as the president of the United States, but it's people that are behind that as well. And that that goes from administration to administration. I mean, you think about it just from a common sense standpoint, that entity, that that virus that's there that is is behind the decisions and the laws and the and the big the big movement toward a police state in our society like that doesn't just go away every four or eight years. You know, that's like, okay, our time's over, time to move on. That's an, that is a living, breathing entity of its own that has, I think, like the pervading force out there. And, and John had a, a, some, you know, some really great things to say about that, but it really shocked the hell out of me. And I know, Buck, I know that you're involved in this even more than I am. I know, you know, you've been talking about this for a while and I, and I, and I, I shame, shamefully admit that for a long time, I was really just kind of jaded and and thinking, well, you know, kind of along the same lines of a lot of people, like, well, no, the government wouldn't allow that, or you know, that wouldn't that that's not possible. Those are just conspiracy theories. And what we're finding now is we're, it's really in people's faces that nope, we're, they're militarizing the police. FEMA camps are already in planning, and in some cases, offices are already set up. Plans are already there. I mean. The plan is being is being built right now, and and only only mo- even now even the average citizen is starting to wake up to wait a minute that's that's just not right. And I'll, I'll give you a chance to chime in because otherwise I'll probably go on for the next hour and a half by myself because this really this really pisses me off. Like I've I've just been fuming since that interview, and and I just I can't get it out of my head. And now I I'm starting to really evaluate. The things that I'm doing, the the ways that I can keep the the government from trampling on my rights, but things that I can do to gain back my privacy. I mean, face it, we're pretty much screwed when it comes to what we've put out there as far as our information. Like I know, you know, we're, our our information is being harvested. Everything that we do is being harvested, and there are little blips on the screen that. You know, every every little thing you do, whether it's a Facebook post or whether it is a, you know, an email that you send, a phone call that you make, a text that you make, or in our case, you know, a book we put out, a blog post we put out, a an interview I do, um, those are all blips on the radar screen. And the more of those blips that hit the, that, that you know, alphabet agency computer that says, hmm, there might be something over here. You might want to give this guy a little bit of attention. Like, basically, we put out stuff that is full of, you know, hey, you better watch this guy. This guy's putting out some really crazy stuff. So, you know, in a way, we're we're already pretty I'm already pretty much screwed, but there are still things that even I can do. But this is definitely a direction that we're taking going forward to really find some things. But I mean, it's it was a real all I have to say is it was a real eye opener to me and we're going to be doing a lot more with John and um and other people in this area as well to get our, our readers and listeners some really, really practical tips of, of what they can do. You're, it, it's, 
it is a a force that is not going to stop and you're not going to stop it. It's not like go ahead, go grab your AR-15s and revolt. It's not that kind of a thing, but it is something that you you can do something about on a personal level to limit your exposure and to protect your own freedoms, liberty, and you know, and your own survival. So we're going to be doing a lot more of that going forward. I'm sorry, I just got back. I went out to IHOP and had breakfast. <laughs> came back while you were talking. <laughs> I, I, I'm like this all day long. It's like I'm just I'm freaking fuming about it and. And I, and I think part of what I'm really fuming about is that I didn't see this coming more because I write about martial law, but I've always written it from the standpoint of I've always written it from the standpoint of collapse. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. disaster happens, we we see looting happening out there. Um, you know, protests go wrong, we see martial law imposed. You know, Ferguson, Missouri. You know, things like that. But but the way that we've always looked at, we always use Katrina as like the event, right? Like Katrina was well, just like the was, Katrina was the event that made me want to be prepared. Like before that, I was into the topic, but it never felt pressing. And then when Katrina happened, and they were running all those news reports of how it was, you know, anarchy in the streets, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, rape, and rampaging marauders and looters. Like I freaked out, and I started buying survival stuff like there was no tomorrow. Yeah. And you know, after I calmed down a little and stopped just buying random things and started researching the topic, then I got a little more serious about doing it the right way. But there's been a lot of uh, a lot of celebrating this week, and in many cases, rightly so, because of the gigantic Republican sweep of the, uh, the midterm elections. Mm-hmm. The problem is, as you already alluded to, the fact that the pendulum swung in the other direction doesn't really change anything from the standpoint of this massive government machine this this thing that is connected, you know, from uh, and I don't want to sound like an Occupy Wall Street hippie retard, but the, the the government and the business machine that drives it and the special interests that inform them all and pay them all, these things all come together to sort of crank up a mechanism whose job it is to treat either the American citizen as the enemy. Uh, we've seen many, many disturbing signs of this over the years. And the problem is that an us-versus-them mentality has happened where the people who are supposed to be working for us, the people who are supposed to be you know, representatives of we the people, instead view we the people as the enemy and as a threat and as people who must be subjugated and controlled. And to that end, they want to know everything about you and control everything about you. But it isn't just them, as John White had pointed out in the podcast, which is terrifying. It's almost as bad as the Ebola stuff. Um, that you are already contributing to this sort of virtual electronic gulag of, of information points about your life because we're all posting data points through social media, through the things that we do, through just living our lives. We don't think about the way, you know, did I use my shopper club card at this store? That's a data point. They, they don't give you those cards because they want to give you a discount or because they want to make the discount harder to get. They give you those cards to link your account to a shopping pattern so they can amass data about what you bought. In most cases, that's simply so that they can sell you more things more effectively. But that data all goes someplace. There are thousands of databases about you that exist in the world, and you would be a fool to think that at least some of those databases aren't being mined for the information about you that can be found. Now, no, 
you know, President Obama does not get up in the morning and drain a kitten of its blood and then have a meeting of the trilateral. Well, yeah, he probably does, actually. But it's not like they're having a big meeting of the conspiracy guys around a big round table where they go, who are we putting on the enemies list today? It's much more complicated than that. Um, there's a quote from Alan Moore that floats around the Internet now and then attached to an image of him, like, drinking coffee, you know, kind of like that, that's none of my business meme, where he says, you know, conspiracy theories don't actually exist because the, the more terrifying reality is that nobody's in control. No one person, no even group of people is in control. It's all these disparate groups all grasping for their own power who form a network of people who are all trying to control you that works together because it has a common goal, not because they're consciously trying to help each other. So you've got – I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, th- I just, you know, kind of just tagging along with that. I mean, don't you, I mean, there is always this e- elite mindset of, you know, there's the animals, the, the heathens of our society, you know, that and it happens at all levels. Right. Like, don't we look at certain people, um, you know, don't we characterize certain people like the the welfare group, you know, the ones who are just, you know, they're the ones who are going to be, you know, they're a drain on our society. You know, they don't work. They don't do it like we have our own classes set up in our head and where we fit in those classes. And so that's a natural, I think, human instinct. And so it's not it's not much of a leap to think of that there's always been this this growing power of elite structure that feel like, look, they see the writing on the wall too, right? Like they see the demise of the dollar coming up at some point. You know, we've been we I've I've been watching reports say the dollar is going to die. We're going to have $32 loaves of bread in 2013. Oh, no, no, wait. It's 2014. Oh, no, 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 wait. <laughs> it's 2015. You know, it's like, but at some point, you know, and this is where I think, this is where I try to put it on people's kitchen's tables, is that imagine if you had, you know, if if um, if your job didn't pay that much, so you decided that you were going to fund your lifestyle on a credit card. And then you max out that credit card. It's like, oh, I better get another credit card. And all of a sudden, you know, pretty soon you've got 27 maxed out credit cards. And eventually some bank is going to say, um, shouldn't you probably pay off one of those credit cards first? No, I don't think we're going to we're going to do that. So now you have 27 maxed out credit cards, a lifestyle that's built around having credit cards and nobody's going to give you any more money. What are you going to do? You have no choice to follow on with that analogy. If you were to then say, gosh, I'm worried about my credit cards. Maybe I should start paying them down. And your wife said, you don't love our children. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly what happens when someone goes, hey, uh, this is a problem. You don't love the children. You want them to die. How could you not spend more money on them? Right. Well, and, and I think for the economy. Yeah. And I think because, and the reason I bring that up is because we talk about all sorts of like collapse triggers, right? You know, natural disaster, you know, thing, things like that, like a, a, a power grid going, the power grid going down, like all of those things would definitely trigger, um, have the potential to trigger a massive collapse of our society. But I think the one that the elites really consider the most like, okay, we better really start doing something about this is, you know, um, world po- world politics, obviously, like China, Russia, you know, there's definitely superpowers out there that, depending upon what they do, could trigger what we do. But you know, you you can't escape the dollar, and everybody everybody in our society is really just they're kind of they're the children, right? They're the children that you know just want to you know 
don't you love the children? Like, keep printing money, keep borrowing money because you got to love the children. And the children are all out here basically just in la-la land thinking that everything is fine because I've got my house, I've got my car or whatever, not realizing that all of that is a debt, you know, on that debt-based economy that just keeps growing. But the elites know, like they, they, they've got their calculator. And so they know at some point this whole charade has got to stop. And when it does, there's going to be mass pandemonium. And so we better do what we need to because those are the heathens and it's okay if they, if they rip themselves apart. But we need to secure our survival and for our, our special little children, you know? Well, and, and where this loops back around to the survival thing is that when people say, hey, you know, bad things are coming, maybe we should, maybe we should prepare for long-term survival, maybe we should look ahead towards these emergencies and try to anticipate them. You know, it used to be the old Boy Scout philosophy, be prepared. These days, we treat people who do that as if they're crazy, as if they're dangerously paranoid lunatics. It's the old fable of the grasshopper and the ant. Uh, many people uh, yeah. are familiar with that. You know, the, the grasshopper all summer long is, is partying and having fun, and he looked at the ant and goes, ha-ha, you're working, and the ant is putting away food, and apparently the ant is no fun and he's dangerously paranoid. But then when winter comes and the grasshopper is, is freezing, he's like, oh, God, can, can you help me because I, I don't have anything. And the ant is like, duh, I prepared and you didn't. And I, to be honest, I don't remember if the fable ends with the ant taking pity on him. It probably does in some kids' versions that I've read. But but the fact is, that comes back to what we always say about what happens when your neighbors show up at your door and go, we, we didn't prepare. Can, can you help us? Yeah. You know, and, and it's every survival scenario ever. Yeah, that's a, that's uh, a great first, parallel. Yeah, I, I first read 1984 in 1984. I was in sixth grade, and I had a... 1984 commemorative edition of George Orwell's 1984. And that book scared the shit out of me. Uh, it made me an anti-communist for the rest of my life. And it's disturbing to see, in some ways, how back in 1948, when George Orwell just transposed the numbers for his future society, he didn't go far enough. Like, they were, he anticipated a lot of things, you know, like television screens in every room that you could never turn off that were always watching your every move. And the, and the way the government manipulates people, some of that is very obviously dystopian science fiction. It's not how it would play out in the real world. Like, your TV is not yelling at you, you know, to, to, to exercise more, although <laughs> I guess in some people's minds it is. But the way that the government manipulated the people in... 1984 is eerie in terms of how that plays out. Now, the single biggest example I remember is always one day, uh, Winston Smith, the protagonist, he hears his radio tell him that the chocolate ration has been reduced to, I don't know, call it 20 grams. The next day, the news announced, good news, the chocolate ration has been raised to 20 grams. It's the same amount, but now they're claiming it's an increase. And, you know, when you think about it, when we start playing this budget game where they say, well, you know, the Republicans want to cut funding for this by these many billions of dollars, and the money always goes up. You know, the definition of a cut in Washington is, did you decrease the amount of massive growth from year to year? You realize that they're all playing this game, this Orwellian doublespeak language game where they manipulate reality by just twisting what things mean. And and I have always remembered the examples of 1984, and every day when I see examples of that, it's really disturbing just how much a reality Big Brother is in our lives now. And so the, the John Whitehead podcast 
his books are great. If you haven't read them, I strongly encourage you to do so. But by great, I, I don't mean you're going to enjoy them. <laughs> you, don't, you don't curl up with a coffee and you know lean back in your beanbag chair and read a John Whitehead book and go, "Gosh, I'm happy." You know, it, these things are terrifying. Yeah, yeah, and and the thing is, and he's so practical. I mean, he's just when you. And it's, that's why that's why I like the podcast because you can hear that this guy really. I mean, he's been doing this for decades. You know that he he's basing everything off of the facts. Like he works against the government you know like in other words he he um he has cases versus the government the local and you know and even higher up and so you know he he's on the inside of this stuff he sees all the the real evidence the real admissions things like that and so you know and and for me and and i guess we can close it out here is where i start really connecting the dots back to home base and to our readers is is you know you can really see how Starting with like Doomsday Preppers, you know, that show. And if anybody's ever, you know, watched the show, I'm assuming that most people have. Like, are re- are these people really the representatives of us? Like, I mean, I, I know, I, I know the person, uh, a few of the people that have been on the show, um, that have been like advisors on the show and things like that. And, the people that they choose for that, it's a reality show. I mean, it's the same, they're trying to accomplish the same thing as they do with Honey Boo Boo. It's like, give them the crazies and, you know, let, let's identify, let's, let's identify who they are. Not identify, let's, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, characterize who these preppers are. Like, these survivalists that are out there. Let's, let's really, um, let's define them. That's the word I'm looking for. Here's yeah, the definition they're, they're of a prepper. Them as- they're painting them as paranoid and crazy and freak jobs because it makes the people who aren't prepared feel better about themselves and better about the fact that they're not preparing. Like, well, these people are obviously crazy. There's no need to do that. That's nuts. And, of course, in the process, they end up demonizing anyone who falls into that category to the point that now our government is targeting people like survivalists and preppers as domestic terrorists. Exactly. You know, because and it doesn't help that some of the freak jobs on the shows like this are there was that one group who got on national television and said, well, when the collapse comes, I'll just kill my neighbors and take their stuff. And, you know, if you went on to any legitimate survival discussion sites after that, everyone was basically saying, okay, remember those people, and if society collapses, we'll murder them. Like, way to go, long-term survival strategy unlocked. Well, and here's, so here's the thing. How did, that, how did that guy even know his neighbor had, you know, had had stuff you know it's because people you know there's been sort of this boy i could i could go a million million different ways with this but you know i guess when doomsday preppers came out and when survivalism became cool you know i mean zombies made it cool also it's like people's egos have this need to to be you know like to be better like to show other people like look how smart i am right like on a very subconscious level like this need to feel good about themselves and so trying to convince your neighbor, like, you know, or tell him, yeah, I've got my guns, you know, I'm ready for the zombies to come, you know, that whole thing, that that's, you're dropping those little hints around. And so now what we're doing is the, the hop, skip, and the jump from doomsday preppers is, you know, we've had several cases now where doomsday prepper hunted by police, the uh, the cop killer that was just apprehended when he was, when oh, during the yeah. manhunt, it was, they had, he was a survivor. That guy was, that guy was supposedly in a, what did they call it? A, a 
military scenario reenactment group or they, they slapped some fancy word on it for the fact that the guy played paintball or did airsoft or something. Yeah. And suddenly that was, you know, paramilitary training and that's why he was so good at hiding from the cops and not because he was, you know, in the woods. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> like like I don't know about you, but if you've ever gone deer hunting, it's really easy to hide in the woods. The deer hide there all the time and they don't have any gear. Yeah. Well this and this just keeps this just keeps adding to the definition. So it's again, it's just like they do in politics. Like define your opponent before they define themselves, right? So define the preppers. Um, now, if any, they always look to see if these if they're a killer. We had somebody locally that was um, so the, the neighbor had ratted on um, this person, and it turns out that they had this cave uh, near nearby me that had ammunition, guns, and explosives. It had C4 in there. The guy had C4, and they blew it up, and you could basically hear the boom from my house. And they had to evacuate a local school nearby there when they blew it up and things like that. And of course, the guy was a doomsday prepper. Now, look, I don't want C4 in caves around my freaking house. And the guy could, you know, obviously, um, and it turned out, you know, the guy was a complete nut job. But the point is, is like any time that you, they can define preppers by look out look at these crazies they also do this they also store food they also like their guns they also have bumper stickers with you know don't tread on me on them like they're defining who the who they are and now it's um they are defined by the dhs and this is something that i, I came across this past week was that the D- department of homeland security did an internal uh study about extremist groups and and what was actually the the history of of terrorism so that we could project where terrorism was going to happen in the future. And they defined people who were reverent to the Constitution, um, to the Second Amendment, you know, as a as right wing extremists. Like apparently if you if you revered liberty and freedom and the Constitution, you can be defined as a terrorist. Now, what that does is it under under the National Defense Act and the things that we talked about with um with John Whitehead if you are suspected of being a terrorist hence like your second amendment rights reverent to the constitution and you can be defined by DHS because they want to and that you're a terrorist they don't have to charge you with anything they don't have to you know go get a warrant for you they can do a no knock raid pull you out in front of your family whisk you off put you in in detention center don't have to charge you can keep you there indefinitely because guess what you're a terrorist so you know it's just like guantanamo and part of where that part of where that comes from is our government was using organizations like the southern poverty law center to help them define what extremists are if you're not familiar with the southern poverty law center it is nothing but a radical rabid leftist organization whose job is to mischaracterize all gun owners and conservatives and libertarians as evil hate mongers. Uh, to give you an example of how pervasive that is, I am on a list at the Southern Poverty Law Center as one of the hate mongers. I wrote something quite some time ago, and the Southern Poverty Law Center decided that was hate, and they put me on a list. You know, the, <clears throat> when our government is listening to people like that, and using their advice to inform what constitutes a domestic terrorist, we should all be alarmed. Because that would be like if the government decided that, uh, oh, I don't know, something, something, NRA, insert joke here. The, the point is you can't let a group with an obvious political agenda 
masquerade as an objective source of information about something that you're going to pass laws about. You know, it's yeah. just not a good idea. So when domestic terrorists are defined by a group that hates conservatives and hates the Constitution, then, of course, you're going to be misdefining all kinds of American citizens as enemies, which is exactly what the Southern Poverty Law Center and the people currently running the Department of Homeland Security want. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I got a little bitter there. No, that's no. I, I I totally hear you. And basically, it what it's done in, in a nutshell is it's created to we can call anybody we want to a terrorist at any time and do anything we want with them. You know, screw the screw your rights, screw the Constitution, screw the Bill of Rights. Um, you know, after nine eleven, all gloves are off. I mean, nine eleven really helped pave the way for mass control. And and so now the people that, like I said, our demographic. I, I call them a demographic. They're people. You know, they're our our readers and subscribers. You know, what I mean is like the the how we classify ourselves in in the people, like in in this patriotic um, class of people. Um, we're 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 right now very subject to uh, additional scrutiny, and so we're going to be talking a lot more in the future about things that you can actually do about that. And uh, and I'm looking and I'm looking forward to bringing more of that out. So I guess it's a good thing we didn't do a lot on the blog this week because we wouldn't have we wouldn't have had any time to rant, rant and rave about this stuff anyway. So um so let's just go straight so let's just go back straight to uh the what do you know, which is our part of the uh the broadcast of the Friday Reload where Buck and I get together and we talk about just the things that we found out this week that we didn't know the week before and things that are practical and should be on your radar screen. So and I'll go ahead and start uh, with this one too. I guess I just have I just can't stop talking today. But actually, my my what do you know is actually what don't you know? Because uh, I don't know, maybe it was like two or three weeks ago when Ebola started to come out. I had done a blog post and I had basically told everybody like, look, don't freak out about this. You know, it it, it only has a spread rate of two versus. You know, something like the influenza or something massive that has a spread rate of a rating of 10. And so and, and, and people have like I basically just took the the media's definition and their their thought pattern and said, you know, told everybody, don't worry, this isn't the is this isn't the pandemic scare that we've been warning you about. And and since then. Um, a lot has changed. <laughs> so I, uh, and then I remember, I remember even as I said it, and you, and you were commenting on it as well, and you said, well, yeah, if you believe what the government's telling you. And there was, I don't know, I guess there was just some part of me that was like, well, yeah, I believe what they're telling me on this. And sure enough, the, the headlines this week were that the CDC, uh, was caught lying about the spread of Ebola, in fact, and, and how it can be transmitted. And so now when they talk about bodily fluids, just like with a, with a flu, you know, if somebody, somebody coughs on their hand and they touch a doorknob or you're in a taxi cab in New York City, you know, now there's, they're, they're admitting, well, yeah, that is possible. So they basically lied about the spread, like how it could be spread in order to avoid mass panic. And well, now there's, the big problem is that the WHO and the CDC don't agree on how to present sort of the statistical data about Ebola. 
Like, we've been talking about 21 days as the incubation period for Ebola. And after 21 days, you're fine. But 21 days is an average. And, of course, whenever human bodies are involved, there is no exact science. So the idea of quarantining people and then the clock runs out at exactly 21 days and they pop out and go, I'm fine. I could go party in public now. Well, that's not actually true. The, the incubation period, the sort of safety window, is more like twice that, more like 42 days. And, you know, so the idea that we should set people loose once they've come back from Liberia or Sierra Leone, you know, after three weeks, it's wildly unsafe. And yet we've got some people like this uh, this woman up in, where is she, Maine now, who Casey Hickox, who decided that well, she didn't want to quarantine herself because that's inconvenient and they're trampling on my right. Yeah. Like, like uh, I'm sorry, miss, but is a month of your life too much inconvenience to make doubly sure you don't infect anyone? I got in, I, 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 I got into a huge argument with my wife about this, like to the point where I will no longer watch the news with my wife. <laughs> well, like, <laughs> like that's over. That's dead and gone. It was leading up to that for years, but this one case like decided it all. You know, how unfair. Like, she's not showing symptoms. She's not showing signs. The only time that it's transmittable is because of, is when, you know, they're showing symptoms and they're bleeding out their ass. It's like, wait a minute. I, I, I don't, <laughs> how do we know that? Like, how do we know she isn't bleeding? Like, well, she'll take her temperature. She's a, she's a healthcare worker. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go into therapy mode here. So I just gotta get this off my chest to save my marriage. But <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, well, she's a healthcare worker. We, you know, she'll, if she sees herself having symptoms, of course she'll bring herself to the hospital. It's like, what? Well, speaking of healthcare workers, Amber Vincent, one of the nurses who contracted Ebola, says she still doesn't know how she got it. She said she never deviated from the protocol. She said she was covered the whole time, and yet she contracted Ebola. Back in August, they were running news articles about the unprecedented number of doctors and nurses who had managed to contract Ebola as part of this big outbreak. And, you know, I'm not saying that, oh, God, it's airborne and we don't know it. I'm saying that we are making assumptions about Ebola and how it is transmitted that you can't use as hard and fast rules. This idea, oh, well, if they're not showing symptoms, then there's no chance of infection. That's bullshit. There was a a case in that was profiled just recently. A woman was declared Ebola-free. She uh, This was in Africa. She'd seen a whole bunch of her family die from Ebola. She survived it. Like, she survived Ebola. She had, she got sick. She got better. She went home. She had sex with her boyfriend. He died. He died of Ebola because you can pass Ebola on even after you're fine. Hmm. So, and specifically, uh, there was a study recently that, that just looked at how long Ebola can be passed on in semen after someone has been infected and has recovered. So, there's a lot we don't yet really understand only because we want simple answers. We want simple statistics. Oh, well, after 21 days, you're fine. Oh, well, if he's not bleeding out of his eyeballs, he, he can't infect you. None of those things are true because they're overgeneralizations. But yeah. we don't want to look at the reality. Like, what happened to the concept of conservatism in medical practice? Like, if we think the incubation period is anywhere from 21 to 42 days, Maybe you should be quarantined for 45 days just to be safe. Yeah. What happened to that idea? Well, isn't that, I mean, isn't that how you contain, you know, a, a disease anyway? I mean, who is, who is it talking about? I mean, the CDC is the Center for Disease Control. You know, it's it's about controlling disease, you know. Well, yeah, and, and the, the government's refusal to shut down traffic from uh, – 
countries that are having, you know, severe Ebola outbreaks, all we heard was politically correct bullshit in response to that. Oh, well, we couldn't possibly, like, isolating these countries will make everything worse. How? How will it make things worse? The guy from the CDC did such a bad job of trying to explain himself when he said stupid crap like that, that finally they went out and hired a political flack to be the Ebola czar, a guy with no medical experience whatsoever, because what they wanted was a spin agent, somebody who could go on TV and give interviews and not make a fool of himself like the CDC director. Yeah, well, and even worse, I mean, they, they, now this past week they had um, they actually admitted, like the news agencies, the Associated Press and other news outlets, the Obama administration had had urged them not to report suspected cases of Ebola. I mean, it's up to th- over 357 now. I have to say, it's probably you know uh, just a few days ago it was 357 people in New York City were under watch. Now that was from one case, and then all of a sudden it was two cases, and so. You know, even even when I said I should have known, even when I said, okay, don't worry, it's only a spread rate of two. In other words, like for every one Ebola person, the average spread rate is two people from that person versus like maybe another one that was like for every if if somebody's infected, then usually ten people are. Well, even if you multiply everything by two, after a while, it becomes three hundred and fifty-seven. Well, it's still a pretty zombie outbreak at that rate. It's still exponential. Like, if I'm one infected guy and I infect two other people, that's what we call an exponential rate of infection. Yeah. Yeah. So, so shame on me. I go through the MCS magazine spanking machine today because I'm not following my own advice and, and, and being a lot more discerning with the information that's coming out. I, I thought we agreed not to talk about the spanking machine. I, <laughs> I like the spanking machine. It's Friday. It's Friday spanking machine time. Um, and we have our clip for next week. Oh, I knew it. As soon as I said it, I knew that was going to be <laughs> one of the sad bites. <laughs> anyway, you know, so so shame on me. And um, and uh, so I'm, ad- I'm admitting defeat, and I don't – you know me, I don't like to go down the fear porn angle. I know a lot of people say, you know, we, we scare the shit out of people with our emails and our books and stuff like that. And that's largely because you should be scared shitless in some cases, you know. But I try to be very practical in what what are true threats and what are not true that threats. And I thought I was playing the, the practical angle of, like, don't worry, you know, don't look behind the curtain. But um, I was wrong. I was wrong. So <laughs> take it or leave it. But... Anyway, more to follow on that stuff. We will keep people up to date as well as, of course, we're always about solutions. So it's not just scaring the shit out of people. It's here's why or why not you shouldn't be scared, and here's what to do about it so that you can be prepared. So more on that coming up. But anyway, you got – um. do you have a – what do you know, or is it all just about my shit this week? <laughs> well, <laughs> just switching gears from societal collapse and Big Brother and Big Decay Control and terrible blood jetting out your eyes that we're all going to catch – I actually tracked down, with the help of a friend, a short story that I've been looking for for a lot of years. I, I remembered reading it as a teenager, and I couldn't find it because I didn't remember enough about it to be able to find it. And for whatever reason, either my, my Google foo was not strong or I just, uh, you know, the time had to go by so that this would become more common information when you search for it. A friend of mine was able to find this story. It's a science fiction story by Alan Dean Foster called Why Johnny Can't Speed. And it's about a dystopian future in which road rage is legal and all the cars have guns on them. And, and uh, when, a, when a fellow's son is killed by the driver of a black Cadillac Marauder, 
he gets into the family sedan and goes out on the highway looking for revenge. And the story climaxes in a big duel between his car and the Cadillac. The Cadillac has like a rocket launcher, and our Dad has a, a twin machine gun turret on his, I don't know if it's a Buick or a Bonneville or something like that. And uh, it's a short story. It's, it's just kind of neat. And I remember reading it and loving it, and I've always wanted to find it. If that story sounds familiar to you, it's because it was a major influence in the invention of a role-playing game called Car Wars, which was popular in, uh, I want to say, the uh, 1980s and maybe the early 90s. The point being, though, I was reminded of all this and started uh, going back through my library. I have some books on defensive driving that I bought uh, when I was a much younger man, and my boring habits were much less boring, or my driving habits were much less boring, <laughs> because I used to be like, you know, the the I was basically auditioning to be a New York City taxi cab driver when I was a young man, and uh, eventually you get older and you calm down and you stop tearing around like everything's an emergency. But when I started researching defensive driving, you invariably come across books about road rage, and Finding this short story and rereading it reminded me of some of those reports when I thumbed back through them. And the single best lesson that you can take away when it comes to road rage and not getting into trouble on the highway is to remember this. The biggest contributing factor to road rage incidents is that we perceive as deliberate actions which do not actually involve us. In other words, when another driver does something that we think is rude and they're doing it on purpose just to fuck with us and we're very angry because how dare they do this to us, often they have no idea we're there. They don't know they did it. They weren't paying attention to us because they don't care. Most people don't care about you and aren't paying attention to you. When they do things to you on the road that strike you as rude, it's often because they don't know it and they're not trying to. So the, the best lesson you can learn in avoiding road rage incidents is to remember yeah, he just cut me off and pulled into my lane, but it probably wasn't intentional. And hopefully, even if it was intentional, you're not stupid enough to go after him for it because nobody wins. It's kind of like that trick, that game that, that uh, other drivers play where, you know, you're... Oh, we uh, call cut out for a minute there. You still there, buddy? Yep, still here. Okay, um, it's kind of like that game that, that we play where you get mad at me, so you get in front of me, and then you slam on your brakes in front of me. Congratulations, we both had an accident. I guess you showed me. And I've never understood that. I've never understood how both of us getting into a car accident teaches me a lesson about anything. But anyway, uh, I'm no longer a road rager, but occasionally I do get very angry because I think somebody has done something on purpose. And the way to avoid that and to avoid trouble on the highways is to remind yourself it probably wasn't intentional because he's probably not paying any attention to you at all. You're just not important to his world. <laughs> That's right. I'm laughing because it reminds me, like, I, you know, I live in a very small community, and, and a small part of my community is where our, our house is. And, and I was going around this blind turn that we have. Like, everybody knows about this blind turn. And I was I was maybe a, a, a smidgen over, like, there is no line in the road, like we live in the country. So there's no middle line in the road. But I was, if there were a line, I would have been a smidgen over that line. And I was coming around, and one of my neighbors, who I know, was coming around the turn and just totally flipped me off. Like, you know, because they had to swerve a, a smidgen. I swerved a smidgen. I did the whole, like, hand up, like uh, like the I'm sorry hand wave, you know, like, oh, my fault, I'm sorry. <laughs> the split second, you know, recognition of that. And his response was to just give me the finger, like, you fucking asshole. How dare you be a smidgen over that line? I was just like, oh, that was rude. You know this guy. 
is that going to get awkward later? You're going to see him in like a block party or something? And well, it was it was two days before the block party, like the national night out, actually. So this was this was a couple of weeks ago, but it was um it was it was right before that, and so I was like, yeah, that was that was kind of awkward. He's like, I'm so sorry. It was just a reaction. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> fuck you. But anyway. There's a commercial floating around uh, right now that I keep hearing, and it's a commercial for some breakfast burrito or something, and it's like, I need a hand free because X, and I laugh every single time a woman's voice comes on and says, I need a hand free so I can tell those construction workers how much I appreciate the compliments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. He told you you were number one. <laughs> All right, my blood pressure is up enough this week. It, it's a good way to end the uh, the week, at least you know right before I go into the spanking machine. So, um, wearing your gun pants. Wearing my gun pants. Don't wear gun pants through the spanking machine. At least not loaded gun pants. Um, it takes a dark and unsavory turn, <laughs> as we usually like to do. All right, everybody, that's uh, that's this week's Friday Reload. And um, as always, please, if you like uh, if you like the podcast, if you haven't listened to the White Hit interview, if you've just been listening to us rant about it, trust me, it's it's one that you don't want to miss. So go back to the uh, the police state interview with John Whitehead and check it out. Please make sure you go on over to iTunes and give us a five star rating and a really great comment in there. Let people know that you like our podcast. Help us get the buzz out. Uh, we were number two. I haven't checked to see whether we're number one on the uh, on the iTunes chart this week or not. On the uh, new and noteworthy, I bet we are. I bet we are. But keep the uh, keep the great comments coming and help us get to the ratings. And please share with your friends, family, and anybody else you think is interested in the stuff we talk about. Send a, send the email on over to them. Have them check us out too. So until the next Modern Combat and Survival Friday Reload podcast, this is Jeff Anderson. And this is Buck Green. Saying train hard. Stay safe. And prepare now. Thanks, everyone. This has been Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.